Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, creativity, and community. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. I am reviewing a book that's a little bit of a departure from my normal emphasis on working and figuring out things around work and happiness and paying the rent and creativity. But it's not too far off, and I'm going to try to link it back. This book is a blast, and I want to specifically talk in the end about domain shifting. But it's an unusual choice. It's The Fabric of Civilization by Virginia Postrel. I cannot recommend this book enough. Actually, one of my guests that I'll be talking to in a couple weeks is the person who recommended it to me. It's all about textiles. She starts with an archaeologist, Arthur Evans, in 1901, and how he can't read a hieroglyphic that is incredibly just common in this discovery he made, which is, I think, Minos, the Minoan civilization. Anyway, one of those really early ones. He kept finding this castle everywhere. He can't seem to make it work within what people could possibly be talking about. And it remains a mystery to him all the rest of his life. He can't read it because he sees it upside down. He sees a castle, but it was a loom. We can't imagine a world without fabric. And it's so deeply woven into our lives that I just use the word woven even to talk about it. One thing that I learned in the first chapter of this book, which maybe even the preface, was that the word text is rooted in the word textile, which completely blew me away. We talk about airline shuttles, comet threads, lifespans, spinoffs, all of those, and many, 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 many more are textile phrases. And she requires in this book an entire mindset shift, and I love a good mindset shift, about what technology is or means. That's one of my favorite things, actually, about, you know, studying history, being interested in human beings, is this idea of what actually we often even still talk in this way. We learn in this way that we're somehow the end game of all the things that came before us. And the things that came before us are old fashioned in some way or ignorant in some way. And we forget that at any given time in history, they're at their own pinnacle of technology. And what we are right now is also in the process of what will be different. So she starts with the technology of string and how string made the stone tools of ancient humans possible. I always assumed it was like leather strapping rocks onto handles, but of course, you're never going to have enough leather for everybody to have a couple tools. Maybe sinew, but again, the, the limitations are huge. But string, once you can figure out how to make string, you can lash tools. Once you can lash tools, you can make knots. Once you make knots, you can make nets. Once you make nets, you can catch fish. It's a million, 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 million things, all starting with string. And string leads to spinning because spinning is how you make thread. And women ended up until very, very recent times creating thread with every spare minute of their lives. The other thing about technology is that agriculture, which I have only ever really heard of 
as being driven by a need for food was driven equally by a massive need for textiles. There are all these pieces of how we operate in the world that come directly out of the domain of textiles. Weavers use language, song, music to learn, replicate, and transmit weaving patterns. So language is very, very important. Printing is just as much about textiles as it is about words. Trading fabric. Phoenicians wrote to each other on those same kinds of clay tablets that Arthur Evans couldn't fully read. They wrote to each other about what was required for trading. They developed the alphabet, and that's why we have an alphabet. It's one of the main reasons. Now, even as I really extol textiles in the next half hour or so, I'm not saying it's the only way we got any of this stuff, but I am saying it was a major, major, major driver of all these things and one that is rarely recognized and rarely given the credit that's due. And the people that made it so are often rarely recognized and rarely given the credit that they're due. Weaving requires tremendous experimental math. It requires that you be able to understand, even if you can't mathematically articulate, prime numbers so that you can get a pattern to weave properly. Weaving led directly to developing machines. Mathematics comes right out of weaving and the textile trade. Fibonacci was raised in South Africa. He learned Arabic numbers there, and he wrote a book. And that book was used as the education for accounting and led directly to double-entry bookkeeping. It led to our adopting the numbers we have. So we've already adapted the letters we have from the Phoenicians. We're adapting the numbers we have from Arabic numerals because of textiles. Leads to a massive blossoming of math. Machiavelli, among others, was educated using these. Weaving is a straight line to computing. And it was literally part of the process of computing before the silicon chip in the 1970s. And one of the Apollo missions, maybe a couple of them, had a physically woven memory. You can hold the memory in your hands because it was woven with magnetic beads into ones and zeros, ons and offs. This also has affected a lot of social movements. So the first automatic spinners were both a labor-saving device, freeing women in, in their time in uncountable ways. But with that came a certain amount of fear and reaction about being put out of a job. And it did happen. You now can't make money from your spinning. At the same time many people are freed up is also the same time what they were making money doing is gone. It happened exactly the same with weaving. Once weaving machines came in and weavers were now being replaced with water, first of all, there's astonishing technology around thread and then astonishing technology around weaving. And just talking off right now, this was in mid-Renaissance. This is 14, 15, 1600s. This is much earlier than we tend to talk about industrial revolutions, but they were already there. They led to weaver riots because a mechanized weaving machine doesn't require as many people. In other words, it's exactly like today when we worry about being replaced by machines. We've already been replaced by machines 
over and over and over and over again. And we don't know it because we never talk about it and we never acknowledge it. And more importantly, we never talk about what happens afterwards so that we could be innovative and not have this dumb cycle every time. Because it is possible that we, instead of leaving people as human refuse, we planned on what happens when we make these changes and did it in a far more humanistic way. We don't, but we could. Farmers develop cotton, linen, animal breeding, sericulture, which is how to make silk, and the processes to go with them. And this is a major driver of developing farming in permanent Neolithic settlements. It's that old. Dyeing was a major part of developing the field of chemistry. And one of the really interesting things about this is this is happening everywhere. You can find these same arcs of innovation, whether you are looking at the history of China, whether you're looking at the history of the various regions of Africa, whether, as I often end up settling the cultures of Europe. One of the reasons I do that is because I'm more familiar with it. But this book doesn't. So that's really fascinating. And then the Americas. Every place has had some version of these arcs. And they've brought these technologies to other places. Ships need sails. Heck, the first airplanes were made of fabric. So it happens everywhere. And then also what happens everywhere is with the development of these arcs of textiles comes the need and desire to trade. Fabric becomes used as money and it gets used as literally money in some places, but it also gets used as an exchange basis in others. So, you know, in fact, some of those early writings that uh, Machiavelli was studying, word problems are all about how you know that a bolt of this big, that's, that's this much silk, that is, you know, these dimensions is going to be tradable for this other thing. These are not state-sponsored currencies. And the ability to do this accelerates the velocity of money without the need for more coin supply. The need for fabric, the demand for fabric, ends up creating credit via bills of exchange, the need for working capital. Traders become bankers. Bankers become financiers. And it is, I love this quote, it's impossible to say when a merchant became a banker, but there were banking facilities before there were actual banks. So that chicken and egg is very easy to determine. All of these things were based on trust and merchant trust. News originated in part based on textile market intelligence. The origins of the Lehman Brothers was in the antebellum South. They were cotton brokers, and they didn't invent the middleman, but they became lenders of working capital. They organized a network of buyers. They supplied goods to plantations, like as if they were catalogs. And then they moved into other industries. And in the 1870s, they become futures brokers, and they open exchanges, including the New York Stock Exchange. So. One of the really interesting things in terms of sort of the topics that I cover on this podcast is an entire section of the book devoted to consumers. And it's really interesting because we often, even if we talk about any industry whatsoever, just in history in general, we, we talk about the producers. Y you may have heard about the Weaver riots. They may elicit our sympathy. We talk about 
sometimes industries as they come out, people that are miners, all these kinds of jobs and labor. But the piece we leave out a lot is the consumer. And consumers are denigrated or forgotten, but they are at least as important. Because all the energy of all this kind of production is devoted to the consumer at the time. But when we look back, we kind of don't factor them in. Textiles have an extraordinary pull for human beings. People have and will start wars about it, break laws, take over other countries. She talks about the Mongols and the way that they hybridized all the cultures of the areas they took over. And that was fed partly by a desire for fabrics. Textiles were a major part of their plunder, and they also kidnapped and imported, exported, enslaved weavers and textile producers. And though they put them all together in part, places of the world where they were not from and created massive hybridization. They also passed Islam through the region in that way. The Pax Mongolia brings tech along protected silk routes to Europe, where they inspire even more art. And the textiles come along, but so do gunpowder, compasses, printing, paper, and then, inadvertently, the Black Death. Selling textiles is a major industry for the city-states of Italy, Florence, Milan, any of those places, Lucca, but equally forbidding people from wearing certain kinds of fabric is also incredibly lucrative because they lead to licensing, fines, sumptuary laws. Sumptuary laws meant you weren't allowed to wear certain kinds of fabric because it made you look like you were a higher rank in society than you were. But a lot of these places, you could pay a fine and do it anyway. So they're making money in all sorts of ways from all of these different areas, all driven by the desire for textiles. One thing we rarely, if ever, learn in this country is that slavery was declining at the end of the 1700s. It was expensive. It was understood to be deeply immoral. And it had lost a lot of its value in terms of return on investment, to even just talk about it in ways that don't reflect the sheer stain on humanity. But because of the cotton gin, it resurged and chattel slavery was intensified and demand for land for cotton is what drove a lot of the Mason-Dixon line and ultimately the Civil War. And we are still, we are still very enmeshed in this in a way that who knew textiles was behind it? We might acknowledge cotton was, but the depth to which it was part of it is hardly ever really talked about as we learn our own history. Cloth contains messages, and consumers determine both the meaning and the value of textiles. And there's ways to look at textiles where we believe things to be traditional, and that traditional is the opposite of modern, and that is not borne out by the way that we use textiles. She's got great examples of traditional, in quotes, Guatemalan fabric with helicopter motifs. And in this, she uses the example of Ebenezer Brown Fleming, who in the 1890s began selling Dutch cotton prints in Africa. And a lot of what you think of when you think of 
traditional African dress is these Dutch prints, which were originally made for the Indonesian market. But Fleming managed to make his fortune trading with groups in Africa, and he relied on what hundreds of local female traders told him customers wanted. Years ago, I worked as a book layout artist, and I worked with a professor who had written a deeply interesting book on Nigerian fashion, Nigerian women and fashion in particular. And she had this whole through line of how people would represent their family connections through a color palette so that when you went to weddings in Nigeria, many times the extended family would be wearing variations on a palette theme of this kind of Dutch cotton. Cloth contains this kind of message. The importance of textiles runs through the business of World War II, nylon, the invention of polymers, and how post-World War II, polyester liberated women. Drip dry, no iron, and then ultimately polyester pantsuits, which was the uniform for professional women entering the workforce in the 1970s and 80s. And I understand as I say this, that what I really mean is white middle-class women entering the workforce, because of course, women from many different kinds of backgrounds had been in the workforce the entire time. But in terms of white-collar professional corporate jobs, that was very much a 1970s phenomenon. And that there was a backlash, because that fabric is, while convenient, also hot and uncomfortable. And there's a certain kind of cheapness to it that, I mean, I mean, that's when I grew up. I grew up hating that fabric. I hated being dressed in it. I hated everything about it. I learned to sew using it, and I hated it. And there was a backlash. And now polymer fabrics are so soft and mimic natural materials so well, we don't even notice them. They make our cotton t-shirts a bit more stretchy. And we consider ourselves to be wearing cotton. One of the really interesting things about all this tech is that textiles don't feel like tech at all. And almost nobody considers them really tech. And nobody thinks about them at all. But then from there, no one thinks about it as like the technological marvel that it is. And Postner says one of the reasons for this is because textile mills are often located in very remote rural areas, and you wouldn't necessarily ever see them. The industry is a major pollutant, and it has been all along. Pretty much every step of the dyeing process has been an ecological nightmare since the beginning. So the thing now is to work on those ecological pieces. Poster doesn't mention polar fleece too much, but polar tech's been a real driver in terms of trying to make the process less destructive and incidentally becoming and being better employers as well. But every time you lighten a material, its shipping pollution is improved. Making knits into 3D shapes means you can make shoes, for example, sneakers, where there's no cutting waste anymore. That also 
is an ecological and financial saver. And there are all these different trade-offs in all these interesting ways. I just watched a video about cotton shopping bags. Are they better than plastic lightweight sh- bags? Which one is ecologically better? They're both bad, but which one of the two is better? And horrifyingly, the cotton bag is much, much, much worse. You'd have to use it thousands and thousands of times because of all the different steps that are used to make that tote bag. Even though it looks natural, we don't see the pollution that went into it. Back to the book. In the past, textile tech spilled into new fields, but now the process has been reversed. Now what tends to happen is that people are very immersed in their own tech and suddenly realize fabric might solve their problems. Several years ago, I went to an exhibit at a science museum in Ohio about medical scaffolding. Actually, it was all about extreme fabrics, but the most fascinating part was these crocheted fabrics. If you need to have an extensive shoulder reconstruction or muscle tear repair, it will be done with a substrate of surgical knitting, high-tech knitting. Back to loop this back around to management and business. Evans, the archaeologist who could not see a loom for 50 years, he never saw it. He only saw the castle. That reminds me so, so much of a story of how there were these anthropologists or archaeologists who found old, old human discoveries of sticks with 28 notches. And for the longest time, and I mean the longest time, this mystery made it into textbooks until women started entering the fields professionally, being accepted into colleges, and suddenly saying 51% of the population always wants to know about a 28-day cycle because of menstruation. This had never occurred to a male-dominated field. Why that number would be significant in any way. The less diverse your team is, the more you miss. And you miss it for longer, the less diverse your organization is. And I mean people who are whatever experience you don't have. We need to better appreciate the depth of human ingenuity of each other's skills. One thing I think about a lot with the topic of textiles is what is professional dress? What are the messages that we give each other through them? Why do we assume that that message is unchanging or that that message is obvious or that message is always appropriate or always right? And that other messages that are done through clothing are not appropriate or not professional. We would do very well to look at that much more carefully before making the decision of what is and what isn't as though that were obvious. Another thing that this book really brought home to me was the concept of domain shifting in our organizations, in ourselves, in our coworkers. We need to see the underlying patterns of what we do. And this got me into really thinking about how important it is to stop hiring the way we currently do. We place entirely too much emphasis on specialty as if that makes you better at what you do. 
I won't argue that there are some domains in which specialty is important, but I would argue that that is a very small portion of work in the 21st century. And even in those specialist fields, everybody does better when there is great diversity of outlook and background. But let's not talk about those few exceptions to the rule. Let's talk about most of the work that most of us do in the 21st century. All of it is hybridized. All of it can benefit from having this kind of domain shift. An auto mechanic that has a background in some radically different thing. An auto mechanic who has a background in customer service is a huge asset to an auto mechanic business because of how many auto mechanics who only specialized in the mechanisms are not good at customer service. But we hire as though none of that matters. We hire as though you should have been born into the little box that you're allowed to be in and go from there and nothing more and nothing less. It is a huge disservice to workers. It is a huge disservice to our companies and our organizations because of the way that it just evaporates innovation. And it is a huge disservice to ourselves because we owe ourselves and each other the ability to commit to learning from one another. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. Next up, the second half of my conversation with activist, theatrical producer, and innovator, Trenda Lofton. The idea, though, that, you know, you were just saying with the cities and states, to just get more committed to these jobs where it would be fine to hire people out just just coming out and reintegrating into society and get them on their feet again is just terrific. Yeah, you know, one of the compost cooperative was dreamed of and developed inside of the Franklin County Jail with folks incarcerated there and cooperative uh, developer and and community folks. And it really came out of the fact, you know, that folks inside were like, you know, one of the things that is hardest when we get out is that people won't hire us. Right. Right. And the people that or the businesses that will hire us right? It's, it's minimum wage. It's, you know, it's not actually living wage work that can sustain them. Right. And we know that when, when you don't have an income coming in, that's solid enough to take care of yourself, then right. There's that pressure to return to things that, you know, would. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You know, it's funny when you say that. So I got an MBA a couple of years ago and One of the things, I was a ringer in the class. I'm not a typical student for that particular degree at all. And one of the things that a couple of us would bring up all the time is anybody thinking about basic economics will go in these directions and it's whether legal or not, it, you know, and it's the systems make this kind of shady behavior legal and these kinds of shady behaviors illegal. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it, it used to get into these really interesting discussions. I remember one of my classmates wanted to ask about the operations sort of set up systems for, she said, well, how is this different than drug running? And boy, the teacher got really upset about it. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> but she's not wrong. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, you, yeah, you can, you can come out with a very good sense of supply and demand, regardless of whether it's ethical or not. And regardless of whether the law allows the unethical behavior or the law comes down on the unethical behavior. It's just really, it was very enlightening to see how there was no real ground underneath whether this stuff should be allowed to continue or not, because it was whether it was legal or not, even though we were talking in both cases about unethical behavior. That's, I finally articulated it. Well, I think, you know, that that's, that's, <laughs> that's another manifestation of classism and white supremacy in this country. For sure. What is classified as just unethical and not okay versus a felony? Yeah. Right. Even the distinction between what is, what is considered a felony and what is considered a misdemeanor often has racialized and, and class-based implications. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, for me, it's, it's part of, it's a huge component of why we, we have to be looking at all pieces, Mm. right? Because I also think, right, it's connected to, you know, like classism and, and, and white supremacy and ableism. So many things fold into our understandings of what makes good theater. Yeah. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does. Right. So it's part of why, right. Like for me, all of these things are so connected. Yeah. Right. Theater is about bodies in space. (laughs) Right. Theater is about storytelling and the stories that we tell about ourselves, people like us and people different from us Mm. have an impact. They have such an impact. Yeah. Yeah. The stories that are told about, you know, certain groups of people Mm. around drugs, around crime, around location, around language and citizenship, right? We have to learn how to recognize the stories that we've internalized. Yeah. That may be impacting the way we're treating people. So again, it comes back to how do we recognize and honor the humanity in every single person? Well, right. How do we honor and recognize the importance for access to safe and healthy food, safe and affordable housing, meaningful, meaningful engagement, right? right? Whatever that right. looks like, and accessible health care. Right. You know, you're, you're saying that makes me think about, first of all, just the, that such a basic how much representation matters. Everybody should see themselves in various situations. And one thing my mother, who had her own raft of issues, used to say was, we are not that kind of people or our kind of people don't do this or don't do that. And it used to be, you know, it's supposed to be a limiting thing in terms of like shoplifting or something like that. But on the other hand, if you never get a chance to see 
what your kind of people, for example, I was expected to grow up and be a wife and a mother. So if I never saw women working or having a voice in the world, then I would kind of keep going in this sort of, this is how our people see ourselves. So you're so right that everybody has to be able to see themselves or a version of themselves out in the open doing things that are liberating and thoughtful and free. It's so profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and a wide range, right. Yeah. Of, yeah. of representation. Right. I think. And then, and then actually like having pathways to actually do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's a, such a, such a, so many important elements to that you know yeah and i think you know when the when compost co-op got started as a way to address you know lack of living wage meaningful work for folks who coming out of jail and prison you know it was like great here is here is a here is a challenge that we can address directly Mm. And then after two years of being in operation and, you know, um, supporting 11 folks coming out of uh, out of jail or prison with, you know, with this job opportunity, what we were seeing is that that despite having, you know, meaningful living wage work, folks still weren't able to access housing. Oh, man. Right. Yeah. Because that's a that, that was another level of exclusion. Right. You know, because, you know, landlords have uh, have feelings and have wonderings and have internalized stories around folks who've been incarcerated. Right. And not only that. Right. Rent prices keep increasing. Right. They just keep going up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so we're finding that folks were you know, getting priced out or getting excluded altogether from from adequate housing. And despite, you know, advocacy and, you know, despite having regular work, folks were still not being able to access. And so (laughs) similarly to like, let's build a let's build a worker owned co-op. Yeah, we were like, well, I guess we should buy a house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that, that folks have access to to housing. And so we did that. We were able to partner with Oxbow Design Build, which is another worker-owned cooperative here in Western Mass based in East Hampton, mm. to purchase a building in Greenfield um, that we're renovating from a two-family unit into a three-family unit with hopes and plans for, for uh, developing further down the line. Oh, that's really cool. There's two projects that I read about that I thought would be so interesting to get involved with. Unfortunately, none of them are near me. But one of them is the travel book guy named Rick Steves. He's a millionaire and was looking for investment and decided instead he would buy a 24-unit apartment complex and work with the YWCA in his city. And then that would go to like fairly priced and sustainable occupation for single families, single parent families. And he was like, why are we not all doing this? It was like, that's a good question, Mr. Rick Steves. (laughs) 
I mean, you know, it's, I mean, for me, that, that's been part of what um, I've learned so much through this process, right? Like, you know, the compost co-op and Oxbow Design Build did not have money, right, <laughs> right to purchase a building. But really what it is, is that community said yes. Yeah community agreed that this was important and worth supporting so you know individuals were donating five dollars or five thousand dollars or yeah all the way up to twenty five thousand dollars right which really enabled us to to move forward with that and again right it's that collaboration and cooperation yeah right that's that's getting clear about what the vision is right and and what the what the possibilities are yeah right there's that creative element of like we're gonna do it differently than what we've seen done before yeah yeah because yeah. well you know it always it, i mm. <laughs> i'm having such a hard time articulating this morning i've often thought about this uh, when i've thought about the weird evolution. I, I grew up Irish Catholic in Northampton, and I thought that the institutions for Irish Catholics had been around forever, since since the year one. So Catholics had their own schools, they had their own hospitals, they had their own orphanages, they had their own retirement communities, cradle to grave. You could, you know, <laughs> mid-century mid 1900s, you could live an entire life where you never set foot in an institution that was not run by the Catholic church. Now, no judgment calls on any of this because there's plenty to have quibbles about. But what struck me is I thought that was the way everything had always been until long after college, I was taking a, a history course just for fun. And my project was Catholic schools because we were talking about architecture and stuff. And when I went and looked back, I was like, oh, my God, this was only since like 1907, 1909. The Archbishop of New York had gotten really sick of school systems insisting that kids say the Protestant version of the Lord's Prayer in schools, which is its own thing. He, he didn't mm. like it. And he said, OK, forget it. If we if we have to say that version if our kids have to say that version, then that's it. We're not going to do any of this. And then it, in the space of a shockingly short time, granted, well-funded church and a lot of, you know, control issues, but they managed this completely separate track, civic track. And, and, and it clearly had a lot of energy and it burned itself out. But here was me growing up thinking this was something that had been in place forever and ever and ever. And it really wasn't. It was really just this short time of saying, OK, that's it. That's it. We'll just we'll get together. We'll figure out how to do this and we will make this alternate universe right here, right next to yours. And I I have like I said, I have lots of thoughts about it, but I can't help but admire the innovation and energy of doing that and when i see projects that are like okay all right you don't provide for this but i bet we could <laughs> just so right, impressed. right yeah 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 i think that there you know there's so many so many instances and i i appreciate you sharing that one of communities organizing themselves to get their needs met yeah 
Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, like I said, I'm, I'm always thinking of caveats. There's reasons why they were left alone and the sheer numbers I think was worked in their favor. But, um, man, I just, I love these stories of things that seem to have been there forever with some kind of official blessing that only mm. had one kind of official blessing and not the other kind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, so where do you find the time? <laughs> Brenda, where are you getting this what? time from? <laughs> <laughs> I work a lot. Yeah. I do work a lot. And right. I think part of what's true is I, I don't do any of the projects I do part time or full time. Sure. Yeah. Which also means, right. Like the way our system is set up, right. There's some needs that I'm like, Ooh, I should really start mm, planning on that. <laughs> uh, but no, I think, you know, I feel really, yeah, I feel really motivated most of the time. Yeah. To keep moving and, and I'm not doing it alone. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, again, it's that, that cooperation and collaboration where, you know, I, I'm really transparent about my different efforts, right. The things that I'm working on, there are an incredible amount of people that are involved in helping to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the other folks with the compost cooperative and Oxbow design build and folks in the community that are organizing amongst themselves to support. Right. Projects. And it's really exciting. Mm. Um, it's really exciting. And this new sort of element of, my my work as a, a real estate agent with Caldwell Bankers Community Realtors is is an incredible. Uh, mm, my hands are coming together. I'm an actor, but you can't see me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, an incredible, incredible merging of of work. Right. Where, you know, I'm I was able to I am learning and getting more and more familiar with the the world of real estate mm. right and thinking about how how we can increase access to home ownership right to to land stewardship I've, i'm really my brain is so anchored in thinking about you know, for me, when you purchase a home or you purchase land you're you're purchasing the responsibility of tending to it yeah versus the ownership of it but it's so exciting to to be a human who has you know experience in in creative processes and cooperative strategies um and really being able to to bring all of that with me into navigating what is you know what has historically been a kind of a problematic right into yeah. Right. Yeah. And so as sort of the the culture around land stewardship is growing and shifting, at least for, you know, some folks. Right. I'm really excited to be able to help usher folks through that process with the variety of lenses. Right. That that we would be carrying together. Yeah. So I make the time. Yeah, <laughs> you make it. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, the the real estate thing is interesting because 
And I think this is a product of when I grew up, there was always this sort of like, if it, if you don't like the way some, actually it's, it ties back to a lot of what you've been saying. You know, I was, I was raised in this, in this time and place and context of, if you don't like the way something is run, don't get involved in it. So, which was a huge disservice, right? Because if you don't like the way, for example, the real estate industry is run, then you should find out as much as you can about it and see in what ways it can be circumnavigated, (laughs) Um, not just sort of turn your back on it. I kind of did that with getting my MBA was, you know, I wanted nothing to know. I I didn't want anything to do with corporate business. But then I was like, my ignorance and my willful ignorance of this is not helping me at all. So it's really interesting that you went towards something like real estate, which, as you said, has got, you know, a problematic history. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you on the (laughs) what happens when you when you get to know some of the systems that have harmed you or harmed your people in the past. Right as a way of again expanding that creative possibility yeah right yeah how can we imagine this differently how can we move differently how can we make it better for more people yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah and of course being the representation that you want to see yeah yeah having navigated to cooperative real estate endeavors in the this last year yeah, I just I I felt the absence of, you know, deep understanding of the variety of ways that we were moving as a cooperative mm. and with anti-racism in mind mm. and with, you know, navigating complex cooperative structures, <laughs> you know, where it's like, thank you so much for telling me that information. I need to bring it back to the team. We all need to discuss, you know, like let's, we need to schedule. Yeah. Right. So understanding that the process of cooperation can look slower. Yeah. And it is so deep. Yeah. And beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. The, the longer I live, the more I'm convinced that individualism is a myth and that we only get it anywhere real by cooperating or individualism is a grift and that the only way we make it anywhere is cooperatively (laughs) and even the systems i wanted to observe this before because i noticed it and now have been trying to be careful and failing to be careful but still trying to really i just want a cookie trenda which is that i was noticing on a structural level that my own upbringing and culture and I'm sure privileged experiences when I'm enthusiastic I interrupt and what I try to support people with like oh yes and things like that underneath and you stop talking when I do that and I'm surprised that you stop talking because your style is more of a stop and allow than mine so even for this when I've been talking for like a minute and a half or so my expectations are that you will interrupt me and talk. And then if you don't, I should keep talking, which is ridiculous. I'm going to stop doing. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. I think, yeah, thank you for, for observing that. And yeah, there's this, I, so in the little, and now I'm going to be stuttery. I think there are several things that are true for me. 
One is that I deeply care what other people have to say. And so, you know, and I think I think I have some, you know, some of my own internalized things to work through. Right. Because it's really easy for me to just stop what I'm saying and listen. It it was one of my struggles in a classroom, (laughs) you know, where it's like. I'm trying to deliver content, but you've got something to say. And I think what you have to say is important, right? Right. So, so it is about finding that balance between, I think what you have to say is important. And I think what I have to say is important. Yeah. Right. And so, so, so those things are true. I think the other part of it that's true for me is it's also just my ADD, (laughs) right? Like if I, if I, if I, get distracted like this moment but if i if i hear a sound that sounds like something i should pay attention to then i like i shift and whatever is happening in my brain goes away mm. so i'm not always able to come back though i've i've worked on some strategies uh, on how to do that yeah and right like i think you know if we were in person and i could see you yeah. it might be different right yeah. because we could feed off of each other's like physical gestures and 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 all of that yeah 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 Yeah. it's one of those places where I've tried to become more aware because I know I do it in fact when I teach I usually start by saying I come from a big loud Irish family please interrupt me I don't know what I'm doing if you don't (laughs) (laughs) I should have said that at the beginning of this just to just to you know, make you feel comfortable with with doing it. But I was noticing, I was like, oh, we have different, we have different conversational styles and, and I should be aware of that. <laughs> mm. Yeah. You know, I don't know that even if you had said that, I don't know that, <laughs> that it would have changed how I moved. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I guess more of an um, invitation. Yeah. Right. Right. And I wonder too, like, you know, cause that's part of, part of what we do in the, when I'm starting to work with a group, right. Is like, let's get clear around like expectations and patterns of communications and needs around that. Yeah. 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 You know, cause there've definitely been times where, you know, I will, especially in meetings, you know, I'll be, sometimes I can get anxious feeling when I have something I want to say, you know, right. and I'm trying to find the right, the right time. Cause I don't want to interrupt anybody. And so, you know, for me, oftentimes what's important is how do we allow some space yeah. in the conversation Right. For those folks who like actually need to, to pause for a second and, and digest what they've just heard so that they can cultivate responses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I, I tend to, you know, we'll have conversations. It'll be bubbly. People will talk over each other. You know, it's it's back and forth. And then we like pause and like, let's all write for two minutes. Mm. Oh, I right? like that. And then do a round with them. I like that. Yeah, just as a way of kind of shaking it up a little bit for, you know, different folks needs. And hopefully, right, like, people who maybe don't speak as freely, 
in kind of that lively overlapping kind of conversation will find space when you say we're going to write for two minutes and then go around the circle and everyone can share. You can pass if you want, Mm. but it, it says again that actually no matter what we value everybody's contributions in this space Mm. yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i like to see that so it's funny actually i was realizing that when i was asking if you had the time and you were saying you make the time it was interesting that it's same with conversational styles i tend to reflexively work from a place of scarcity and you are working from a place of abundance which frankly is aspirational Mm. for me Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that. So and so on that question, if you had infinite time to achieve your goals, what do you think you'd want to make sure was done? Infinite time. I would be able to take a week off a month <laughs> yeah. to, to actually to actually rest and restore. Mm. Yeah. 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 But I I am developing a structure with a collective of folks around around the country really that is looking at ways of cooperative land stewardship. Mm. So there's a, a program in California called East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. And are they about land preservation or housing or both? Both. Both. What it does is it takes a look it takes a look at how the speculative market works mm. and and works to shift that so that more people have access to affordable long-term housing. Mm. Mm. I had one more question for you, but not for this specifically. But when you talked about Caldwell Bank or uh, Caldwell Real Estate, you mentioned that it was community. Is that different than a? I didn't catch you up on it because I wasn't sure if it was just the company name, or are you doing like cooperative real estate through Caldwell? Yeah, so it is just the name of the company. Ah. Which legally, when I when I when I name the fact that I'm a real estate agent, I have to name the company. <laughs> got, it. got it. Okay, good. Okay, I'm glad I didn't yes. say anything about it back um, then. Okay. But yeah, so I am working towards specializing in cooperative and collective purchases. Uh, okay. You know, like I'm going to help anybody who wants to buy a house, buy a house, or yep. anyone who wants to their house lists their house definitely need to list some more houses janet so this is a shameless plug if you know anyone who is even considering moving or selling their home I will uh, let you know. yes yeah. but yeah so yeah so i will i will work with anyone of course and yeah. i'm really anchoring in developing relationships with cooperatives who might be seeking land because okay you know uh i didn't have that kind of support for my agent (laughs) yeah yeah but it would be great to have an agent who knows a little bit about that stuff yeah thank you for clarifying that so let me ask you what would you tell your younger self like if you could just take a little time machine back and visit her what what's something that you would want her to know Mm. 
I love this question. I would want her to know that she doesn't have to wait for other people to give her what she wants. That she, that, that her voice and ideas is important, are important. I would want her to know that good sleep and good food is really essential. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about basics. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. I do, especially the good sleep. Culturally, we do not believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, this has just been such a pleasure. And, and the fact that you are so connected with so many communities, I just find really remarkable. Mm, thank you. It's an honor. It's an honor to be invited into different processes and for folks to want to be connected to me and, and, and some of the processes that I'm involved in. Mm. Yay, community. <laughs> right? Yay, community. Well, thank you so much, Trenda, for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you, Jenna. I appreciate the opportunity and for your sharing and your questions. I just, I love it. I love talking to people. I'd like to thank Trenda Lofton for coming on the show today and talking about the incredibly cool wide variety of things she's involved in links and much more can be found at our website working nine to thrive.com and that's with the number nine <laughs>